Hello and welcome to this week's podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 5th March 2021. This is Ian Haydock. On the menu this week, Sanofi's rebates, Moderna's business prospects, US views on coronavirus vaccine comparisons, experts talk about virus variants, and new clinical results in asthma. Sanofi returned 54% of its gross sales to payers through rebates in 2020, marking the third consecutive year the company paid more than 50% of gross revenue in rebates. The French firm released its fifth annual pricing report on 3rd March, fulfilling a commitment to be more transparent about drug pricing. The top-line takeaway from the report was that Sanofi's US average aggregate list price across the commercial portfolio increased 0.2% in 2020, while the US average net price decreased 7.8%. Sanofi said it's the fifth consecutive year US net prices have declined on average, though in 2019 net prices declined by more, 11.1%. The aggregate list price increase of 0.2% was the lowest in at least five years. Jessica Merrill writes that the company also revealed that it paid a total of $14.6 billion in rebates in 2020, including $5.9 billion in mandatory rebates to governments and $8.7 billion in discretionary rebates. That underscores one of the industry's long-standing arguments when it comes to the issue of drug pricing, that drug makers heavily offset price increases through rebates, but those price concessions do not trickle down to the patient. The narrative is one the industry has tried to move into the forefront in the last five years, as drug pricing has become a hot-button issue with the public and politicians, particularly in the US. Drug makers have tried to point the finger at pharmacy benefit managers and healthcare plans while promoting rebate reform as a key element of legislation to address US drug pricing issues. Several big farmers committed to releasing annual pricing reports several years ago as part of a strategy to be more transparent about price. The reports also present an opportunity for companies to highlight how much they offset annual drug price increases with rebates. The US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will not compare efficacy and safety across the authorized COVID-19 vaccines, at least in the near term, panel chairman Jose Ramiro has said. During an emergency meeting on 28th February, the committee voted 12 to 0 with one recusal to recommend vaccination with Janssen's one-dose vaccine for persons 18 years of age and older under an emergency use authorisation, which was granted by the FDA a day earlier. Panellists were concerned about the potential public perception that the Janssen vaccine was less effective and called for clear communication that the best vaccine was the one available to them. Susata reports that the EUA and accompanying ACIP recommendation mean that three COVID-19 vaccines are now authorised for use in the US. Janssen's one-dose AD26COV2.S, which is based on an adenovirus platform, and the two-dose mRNA vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna, which received EUAs in December. Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna came to market on the strength of Phase 3 data demonstrating vaccine efficacy rates of 94 to 95%. Janssen's Phase 3 trial was conducted later than that of its predecessors and during a period in which more contagious variants of the virus were emerging and circulating.
Janssen's vaccine efficacy rates were 66 to 67 percent globally and 72 to 74 percent in the US, easily surpassing the FDA's efficacy threshold of 50 percent. However, the difference in top-line efficacy numbers inevitably has led to questions about how the vaccines compare to each other and raised concerns that the Johnson & Johnson division's product will be seen as inferior to that of the first two entrants in the US. Moderna says it will earn more than $18.4 billion in 2021 thanks to the success of its COVID-19 vaccine and a planned booster shot targeted at emerging variants. That is a big increase on the previous estimate last month of less than $12 billion and is thanks to hundreds of millions worth of advanced purchase agreements in recent weeks from the US, EU and other countries. Moderna has also announced new investments to further expand its manufacturing capacity to produce up to 1.4 billion doses in 2022, which is likely to generate billions more in revenues next year. Andrew McConaughey writes that the Boston, Massachusetts-based company had never launched a product before, but that its vaccine mRNA-1273 gained emergency use authorization in December 2020, just two weeks behind Pfizer-BioNTech's fellow mRNA vaccine, with both achieving 90% efficacy in pivotal trials. Moderna's $18.4 billion compares with Pfizer's $15 billion revenue projection for its vaccine, Comirnaty, in 2021, and the US company does split revenues 50-50 with BioNTech, though that is expected to be overly conservative. Analysts have previously been cautious about Moderna's revenue prospects because of limitations to its new mRNA manufacturing capacity, but the company has just increased its 2021 output forecast by another 100 million doses to at least 700 million this year, and will aim to achieve 1 billion doses. This would confirm Moderna as a major league biopharma player, even if, as most predict, the COVID-19 vaccine market will rapidly shrink after 2022. Leading virologists were not entirely taken by surprise by the arrival of COVID-19. However, we just didn't know when and what virus. I made one mistake. I always thought it would be some new type of influenza virus, but it was a coronavirus. Professor Peter Piot, who's director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, said at the recent BioAsia 2021 conference. Piot said he was also not surprised about the emerging mutants and variants of SARS-CoV-2 and explained that as sequencing efforts increase, the world will unavoidably find more. We shouldn't panic for every mutation or variant that will come up. However, there are a few variants that we have to be really mindful of. So the first thing is that when we sequence more and we find mutations, strive to find out what they mean virologically, such as by increased transmission, as was documented for B117, Piot said during a panel discussion at the virtual event. While this British variant is more transmissible and maybe causes slightly higher mortality, the good news is it's frankly covered by vaccines, the virologist explained. The variants from South Africa and Brazil, though, appear to be more complicated. Andrew Gangurdi reports that Piat noted that at least one candidate vaccine, that from Johnson & Johnson, has already been tested in a trial in South Africa, which included people who were at risk for developing severe disease and hospitalisation and death, although some other vaccines don't appear as effective against new variants, at least for now. For other vaccines, like that from AstraZeneca, we don't know because there were no people in the clinical trials at high risk. 
In spite of that, the World Health Organization recommended it for use in populations where there is this variant, which I simply don't understand, Piot said, because that's not supported by data. The B1351 variant of the virus seen first in South Africa has been of concern, since studies have suggested it reduces the efficacy of existing vaccines and therapeutics, some more than others. Another variant called P1 was first identified in travellers from Brazil. At the time of the emergency use listings of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine on 15th February, the WHO noted that the vaccine maintains a high level of efficacy against B117, while preliminary findings suggested it may be less effective against B1351. Finally, Amgen and AstraZeneca's tezepelumab showed significant efficacy in reducing patients' annualised asthma exacerbation rate, regardless of their eosinophil levels, in the first detailed set of Phase 3 data in the treatment of severe uncontrolled asthma. The commercial potential of the product remains unclear, however, since doctors say they are unlikely to switch patients with high eosinophil levels who are served well by existing biologics approved for that population. Manji Jackson writes that the Navigator data showed that tezepelumab demonstrated clinically meaningful reductions in exacerbations across patient groups and biomarker segregation, and was associated with significant improvements in lung function, asthma control and quality of life and symptomatology measures, including hospitalisation or emergency department visits, the companies reported. These data, in combination with the prior Phase 1 and Phase 2 data, will form the basis for regulatory submissions in the US and EU that are planned in the coming months in the first half of this year, Amgen Executive Vice President of R&D David Rees said in the same-day analyst call. A Phase 2 study is currently enrolling in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and we plan to initiate with our partners a Phase 2 study in chronic spontaneous urticaria in the coming months, he added. Tesapilumab is one of two important late-stage assets, along with the KRAS G12C inhibitor Sotorasib for lung cancer in Amgen's pipeline that could win US approval in the near term and give the company's commercial portfolio a needed boost as it faces ongoing biosimilar and generic competition for former blockbuster products. The biologics license application for tezepelumab in the US may get an expedited review since the FDA granted a breakthrough therapy designation for treatment of asthma, which is severe and regardless of eosinophil phenotype. That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. Links to these stories in full are given in the script article accompanying this podcast. And also a reminder that this and all other Informer Pharma Intelligence podcasts are now available on our new channel on Spotify, as well as the other usual platforms. Bye for now.